Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's now time for our interview specials. Take a trip back in time to the golden era of football. Sit back and listen up. It's time. For the main event with the Phoenix Five and a 90s football icon. On this week's show, we have Bill Brown. Ladies and gentlemen, sit back and enjoy the show. You can't win anything with kids. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. How much are the players looking forward to Arsene Wenger arriving? <laughs> Hello and welcome to this week's guest interview. We're lucky to be joined by Mr. Phil Brown. Phil kicked off his playing career with local Sunday league team Red Duster. He then moved to Hartlepool, playing over 200 games before moving to Halifax Town. Brown then caught the eye of Phil Neal, who later brought him into Bolton, where he spent the best playing years of his playing career. Even getting his hands on silverware with a 4-1 win over Torquay United at Wembley Stadium for the now-known EFL Trophy. Phil went on to manage many clubs, including Bolton, Hull and Southend, and recently was found coaching in the Indian Soccer League. Phil, hello, how are you? I'm very good, I'm very good. I'm, uh, I'm stuck in the middle of this pandemic and I've just come back from India, strange enough. So uh, I've just come out on Friday uh, from quarantine. I had 10 days quarantine, but fortunately for... For me, India wasn't a red flag country, so I could quarantine at home. Well, thank you very much for coming. I'm going to start at the beginning. At the beginning of your career, we've spoken to other guests about how they got into football. Um, some come through the YTS system, some have been scouted, some from lower league football. <laughs> if I'm right in thinking, you come through the Sunday league route of getting into playing football. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, it's sort of a, an unused route nowadays. You know, I don't think too many players actually go into non-league football or go into Sunday league, Sunday league football and get spotted by, strangely enough, one of the directors at Hartlepool United. Uh, and I don't know whether he was just out for a Sunday stroll or what, and he got caught you know, by a game of football. Uh, but there was a couple of parks in, in South Shields that were well known for uh, five or six games going on at the same time, the Benz Park down on the seafront. 
Um, there was two or three uh, which always caught the eye, caught the attention. Obviously, pitch one, everybody thought that's that's going to be the best team. Anyway, we won pitch one this day. Uh, and I'm playing for a team called the Red Duster. And basically, it was a group of lads from the same council estate. Uh, and that was the local pub. And on a Sunday afternoon, um, we were run by a couple of... <laughs> couple of, uh, shall we call the drunken manager and assistant manager that was standing on the touchline telling us how to play football. It wasn't well, quite that way. You're fitting where we feel. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, uh, it was one of them where, you know, we just had a great time. We had a great camaraderie uh, before, before life really begun, you know. We served my time as an electrician, you know, as an apprentice electrician when I was 16-year-old. So this was when I was 18. I'm two years into... Uh, my apprenticeship uh, as an electrician and somebody said, do you want to go pro footballer? And I'm 18 year old. I'm two years into a four year deal. And it was one thing that uh, I've always done. And I always will do is that when you start a contract, when you start a deal, you, you fulfill it, you go through with it. And yes, you can break it off with the right clauses, et cetera, et cetera. In the modern day world, we've seen a lot of that in football, but I'd started this uh, four year apprentice electrician. And uh, that was me. Strangely enough, that was my father's ambition for me to become a tradesman. And my mother's ambition was to be a pro footballer. And the day I got my indenture forms when I was 20 year old, I actually signed a five-year deal at Hartlepool United. So, albeit I turned down the offer at 18, it was still there for me at 20. And I fully believed that it would be because I believed in myself, you know. Wow. Holland, that's a bit like your career, isn't it? Your parents wanted you to do something like that. Is that right? Oh, I done the plumbing bit, but the football a bit that didn't quite work out for me. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, it's not far off making some decent money nowadays. Apprentice electricians going into a pr- into well, the pro trade now. Let me tell you that, and I'm his mate. He's loaded. <laughs> <laughs> Although much money is Phil, I can tell you that. <laughs> I just want to go back before your um, Sunday league um, playing days. I'd like to know what your first um, memory about football was, i.e. like World Cups, your favourite players, just a kick in the park. I sat and watched the World Cup in 66 in the house, didn't move too far from the TV screen that day. And, and I always remembered uh, what a glorious day it was uh, in terms of, of winning something, you know. Uh, in 1967, my dad took me to Newcastle United to see uh, the Fairs Cup uh, I think it was quarterfinals or semifinals against a, a, a team from, I'm sure it's Hungary or somewhere like that, up Jess Dozer. And um, I was in the Gallagher end and it was one of them where 60, there must have been 65,000 at the game. It was a fantastic experience, but not one that sort of grabbed me attention in terms of uh, supporting Newcastle United from then. Mm. Anyway, a little bit further down the line, my mother had a, she used to have a corner shop uh, and the local breadman, um, he was a big Sunderland supporter, and he used to take me to Roker Park, and uh, I used to sit in the clock stand, which was the posh end. It was a real posh end, you know. And uh, I used to sit there with my legs over the side of the barriers watching this game of football and fascinated by it. But the next time I really went with my mother was on the FA Cup run, you know, when we won the... When I'm saying we, I was, I was a supporter of Sunderland then, and we won the Cup oh, in 73. 73, aye, when yeah. we beat Leeds United 1-0 at, at, uh, at Wembley. I didn't get a chance to go to Wembley that day. But uh, I went to the quarterfinals, I think, was against Man City. The semifinals were against Arsenal. And one of them, 
um, was at uh, Roker Park and we won a 3-2 that night. It just really got me into it. You know, Sunderland was the place, the full ender was a, I became a full ender then, you know, so I was a proper yeah. football supporter before I actually became a professional. And I think that's fed my, uh, my passion for the game more than anything. You know, and understanding the guy in the terraces is the most important part of any manager's job. Mm. Uh, and more importantly, if you, if you can understand the guy in the terraces, if you're a player, knowing full well, what they want. They want to see attractive football. Yeah, we'll get all that, you know, but they want to see hard work. You know, I was working class black background, you know. Yeah. Uh, they want to see hard work. They want to see um, sweat on the shirt. You know, they want to see commitment to the cause, et cetera, et cetera. So when you understand that as a player, that's probably the reason why I managed to play 700 games, regardless of what level, mm. uh, as a professional. But more importantly, when I went into the management side of things, understanding the the people on the terraces at, at Bolton Wanderers at uh, at Hull City, they were they were key factors in any success story that I had uh, as a manager. You was at the uh, Hartlepool for over two hundred games. You know, I think you spent nearly ten years, eight eight to ten years there, nearly. And then you moved to Halifax. What was that like moving from Hartlepool to Halifax? How did that come about? Well, it strangely come about in in a bit of contrast controversy. You'd, you'd like to be as a purist. You'd like to say, "Oh, yeah, somebody made a bid for me, and uh, they accepted the money, and, and, and the rest history." Well, it wasn't anything like that. Uh, I'll tell you what it was. We um, Hartlepool was struggling financially, and Vince Barker was the um, the chairman, and he was uh, a local farmer, um, and again, working class guy. You know, but he, he ploughed all his money into the club. Uh, and it sounds like a, an age-old argument of sort of supporters against the the owner. He was a one-man band, you know. He did have, you know, obviously had directors on the board, but he was a one-man band in, in as much that whenever it was in trouble, he was the one that put his hand in his pocket. Anyway, long story short, he gave me a five-year deal when I was 20. And uh, in the fourth year of that, I'm captain of the club. Um, I'd been captain from the age of 23, but in the fourth year, being the captain of the club, you became PFA delegate. And what I mean by, by that is you were union rep. And we hadn't been paid um, something like four weeks wages and five, six weeks in bonus. So it was a lot of money that we hadn't been paid at. And I was getting calls from Gordon Taylor uh, saying that we were well within my rights to withdraw our labour. And not that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Bolshoi or, you know, I'm not, I'm not into, you know, I'm not going to stand on my soapbox and tell everybody to strike. I'm not that way inclined. But when he said that you were within your rights, I put that to the board and um, they said, you wouldn't, you wouldn't dare. And I said, well, you know, we've got the backing of the union. We were playing, strangely enough, Halifax Town on the Friday night. And on the Thursday before that, we were through a labour, meaning we didn't go to training. And when we didn't go to training, the manager was straight on the phone to me saying that I was the ringleader, I was doing this, I was doing that. I said, I wasn't. Gordon Taylor's told me exactly where we stand. Anyway, cut the long story short, we got paid every penny that was owed to us on the Friday morning, set off for the Halifax Town game on the Friday night. We, they used to always play on a Friday. We played the match, and that was one of the last games I played uh, for Hartlepool. And after that, Halifax Town's, you know, they signed me. Um, so it was a sort of a sad ending to a, a four or five-year stint uh, at a club where I'd represented probably, I was playing 40, 50 games every year for them uh, and captained the club, et cetera, et cetera. But it was purely down to the fact that because you're the captain and there's no shop steward in the change room, you had to be the shop steward. Um, and unfortunately, that was the moment where we called a strike and, uh, as I say, the rest is history. Bill Van Hoydonk. 
<laughs> it's not. I'm not that way inclined. It's just a case of you know yeah. you're work, working class man. You get you know you're working for a reason. The reason is you're going to get paid to put food on your table for your family, and uh, you know we, we were four or five weeks behind. And it didn't look like it was going to come. So uh, we had to do something about it. Phil, uh, did you have to pay to go into the union? Your subsidies were very small in them days. I think I, I think at the moment, they're 50 quid uh, a year at the moment for, for any player. And when you think about that, it's nothing. And I think it was a minimum. It might have been, might have been a lot less than that. I can't remember to tell you the truth. But yes, we did have to pay a subsidy, a what? yearly annual fee. The reason I ask is that my, my brother's just become a, a, a bus driver in uh, in London and uh, he's joined the union straight away and he has to pay £6 a week. And believe it or not, he's already had three strike days within like within three weeks of joining. that. So that's why I asked because he has to pay £6 a week, so 24 quid a month, whatever. But he says that with the union, it gives him a lot of benefits, i.e. if he was to ever knock someone down or he, they would get good lawyers that well, well, well so that's why I asked in those that what in the year you're talking about that's why I ask if if you would have to pay union fees from, um, from what I can remember it was a minimal fee it was a very small figure but yeah we did definitely pay do you think the fee because that fee goes across all levels I believe still to yeah. the day do you think that should be a percentage of the wages in hindsight so, so, so that this, the higher pay in hindsight yeah, in hindsight, with the disparity between, you know, without getting into a union um, mm. argument, but the disparity between the championship and the Premier League alone, let alone yeah. the first and second division. I'm doing a, I'm doing a diploma course at the moment. Um, a lot of people have asked me the question why I'm doing it, but I don't think you're ever too old or you know to learn. You keep on going, you know, and um, I'm probably going to be the oldest, you know, oldest member of the <laughs> diploma course. This year, but you know that's by the by. But at the moment, uh, it's one of them where I just feel like um, the the difference between the second first championship and the Premier League, of which I got all the figures last month because I was doing a, a course, the course on finance. The, the the disparity is phenomenal for, for somebody to pay fifty quid out of a second division wage and fifty quid out of a Premier League wage is ridiculous. So yes, I would have said yeah, a percentage. Okay, so obviously being part of the Bolton team, uh, you spent eight years at Bolton and you went up from Division 3 to Division 1. What was it like playing in Bolton? I mean, your most memorable game from doing a bit of research was the FA Cup tie, knocking out um, Arsenal with a 3-1 win. Um, what was it like, yeah, at Bolton at the time? Um, well, it, it was a club that, you know, back in the day, if you want to call back in the 50s and the 60s, in which I used to make reference to many, many times when I was supporting Sunderland. Sunderland used to be the Bank of England in the 1950s with great players like Len Shackleton, you'll never have heard of. Len Shackleton, Charlie Hurley, people like that, you know. But that's that's what, for me, is local passion, you know. And when I went to Bolton, it was a very similar kind of feel, you know. It was a working-class town uh, with um, great memories of great players like Nat Lofthouse uh, and people like that. And they had this manager who played in my position. It was one of the main reasons why I signed for Bolton. I had um, three or four offers. I had a good time at Halifax, you know. Um, I had three years and we did quite well. And, you know, I made a name for myself as an attacking fullback, you know. And, and the reason why Phil Neal signed me, we played Bolton uh, the old-fashioned the old fashioned way, you know. FA Cup uh, goes to a replay, goes to another replay, extra time. You know, it was all replays before extra time kicked in. So we in my third replay. 
So I played against Phil Neal's team three times, and he was playing left back in them days. Well, I'm saying in them days, he had he had a decent right back in the Bolton team. So he decided I'm I'm good enough. I've got the quality, which he did, and he was playing left back against me. I'm the opposite fullback, and I kept on going past them and getting crosses in and this that, and the other. So he signed me after them three games, and it's amazing how the how the how football is. Uh, but I never forget my mother when I'm driving down the A Triple Six, which was the Devil's Highway into Burnden Park, uh, which was the old, you know, you use guys will probably know it as uh, the Reebok Stadium. Well, the old Burnden Park was a was a class old stadium, and uh, my mother. Um, came on the phone to me and she said, make sure, what, whatever you do, never mind Phil Neal, make sure you go into Nat Loft's house, not, <laughs> Nat Loft house's room and make sure you say hello to the guy because he is a, you know, so my mother, I'm getting all the, the stories from her. But um, not that she didn't uh, respect Phil Neal, it was just a case of, um, if you're going to sign for anybody that's going to teach you how to play right back, Phil Neal's got 51, I think he had 51 games as a, an England right back. He's the one that's going to teach you how to play. And uh, and it was just that progression, you know. So twenty seven year old, I think, was when I when I signed for Bolton, and uh, I had about six seven years there. Uh, but when you're talking about the memories um, in the early days, there were there were tough days. We got promotion against Preston North End, last game of the season, uh, which sent them down. Strange enough, we got promoted to the first division. They got they got relegated to the third division, which was a nightmare for them because they were they were also founder members of the um, of the football league. So um, uh, we weren't <laughs> we weren't uh, thought of very highly in Preston, which is only about twelve mile away from Bolton. So you know, watch out where I was going for paint on a night time. <laughs> um, but um, in the days when Phil Neal left and Bruce Rio came in, that's when really Bolton kicked on. And uh, I know they didn't kick on straight to the Premier League straight away. There was, a, there was a couple of hard days in the Championship, but we eventually got to the Premier League. And by that time, I'd gone to Blackpool to start my um, career as a coach. And that was alongside Sam Allardy, so we both eventually came back to Bolton with. But anyway, the, uh, the, the days, the, the times when we had with, uh, with Bruce Rioch, he just I just remember the, the amount of um, belief he gave you. He was, he was quite phenomenal. He was, he was a strong... Powerful guy who um, oh, was he was to, more into. How do you feel about him? Like how? Because I'm a QPR fan, yeah. So he went to QPR. That's why. So it's about him. But obviously, when he came to QPR, I didn't really think he'd done, done that much. But the way you're speaking about him, obviously, unbelievable. He was. He, I'll, I'll never forget the very first day he came in. Uh, we had a, a full blown eleven v eleven on the pitch at Burnham Park, and he. He got everybody fully, you know, the home shirts, the away shirts. He broke the two teams up and he played centre midfield and he smashed into everybody. And he was about, what age would he have been? He'd been in his 40s then. And he absolutely gave you a lesson in how to never show fear, never show anybody that you're hurt. He just absolutely weighed in everybody. We had a hard man, Rioch, supposedly talking, a hard. This is real. We're talking. This about. is this is Bruce Rioch. Yeah, yeah okay. I mean, he was a great. He was a he was a great player. Um, you know, Scottish international, Aston Villa, this, that, and the other. Uh, but the day he came into Bolton, he just wanted to show everybody that he could play, and that he was going to show you how to play as well. And my word, I'll never forget it. He hit Mark Patterson, who was supposedly our hard man in midfield. He hit Paddy who used to play Blackburn, Preston. He played all the uh, Lancashire teams and he smashed him into in, in two. And Paddy got up that day and he was like, wow, this guy, this guy knows how to play the hard way. 
Anyway, you never forget that. But we, we used to go to places like, well, in the FA Cup run, if you've checked your, your homework, we went to Anfield and beat Liverpool. We went to Goodison Park and beat Everton. We went to uh, Highbury and beat Arsenal. Um, we beat Aston Villa at home. And then we got beat off Oldham in the quarterfinals of the FA Cup. There was, it was just an unbelievable run, but it was, it was all down to his belief. Ridiculous. Sorry? It was ridiculous, the run. When I looked at the research, I thought I, I, thought I got the years mixed up. But it was, it was just crazy. Um, yeah, yeah. He, he just gave you a lot of belief, Paul. He just really rammed home that, you know, we've got nothing to lose here. You know, I believe in you. This is how to do it. You know, brilliant. So when you talk about, um, sorry, Bruce Riot playing the game and going in hard on people, did you have David Lee at the time at your, at your club? Was he playing yeah, Bolton did, then? Did he, did he uh, uh, go in hard on him? He was only a little dark, wasn't he? He couldn't. He couldn't get anywhere near, did he? He, um, <laughs> he was. He was playing in front of me. David. David was me. Uh, he was me number seven, basically. But sometimes he would play the eleven. He'd play the other side, but he couldn't cross. His, he couldn't cross the road with his left foot. Um, <laughs> but he uh, on a right hand side in front of me. If I ever got past him, I was like, how, how am I? <laughs> how am I getting ahead of this guy? He's quick. Quite nifty, wasn't he? He's, he's sharp. He's always on the front foot. Uh, I really enjoyed playing with Didsy, but. Um, we had a good team, I David Lee. If you look, if you look back when we beat Liverpool at Anfield, David Lee provided, I think, both crosses for the goals. Yeah, yeah but, oh, that's yeah. what I remember. Was it John yeah. McGinley as well. Was he, he, he was up top, wasn't he? Yeah. John McGinley and uh, Owen Coyle and uh, Andy Walker. Blimey, yeah, it's going back a bit, isn't it? Oh, sorry. Yeah, uh, talk about your your time at Bolton, Phil. Um, you was in the lower leagues, obviously, for uh, I think the majority of your career. Do you um, ever think you were good enough, personally, to play at a high level or even go maybe go into Europe, play in Italy, Spain, uh, Holland, etc.? I never, ever thought I was... Um, I, don't, I don't think it was a lack of a belief. I just thought I had too long a stride and I, was, I wasn't quick enough. Mm. You know, when you're, you're defending, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking about... I'm making reference to coaches now. OK, I've told you Bruce Riot was more of a manager. This was how he wanted his teams to behave. This is how he wanted his teams to play. I didn't meet Sam Allardyce until I was 35, 34 year old. I think it's just nearly 35 anyway. And Sam taught me how to tackle from the front foot and stay on my feet. All my career, I was tackling from my back foot. And if I, if I could demonstrate now, I would do. But tackle from my back foot. And I was lunging. Forward and I, I never, if I if I went to ground I was dead. Well, and the and the game was speeding up. It was getting quicker, you know. And uh, if anybody stopped started me as a winger, that would be I, I would be dead, you know. But if someone was just running straight, I could run in straight lanes. That, that ain't a problem. But stop start. But it was that belief, you know. It's like you know Bruce used to say. Bruce Rio used to say to me. Uh, I told him one time. Um, I, I just let it slip out. I just said, I'm not that good a defender. And he absolutely put me up against the wall. He went, what? Who's told you that? And he's like, this was the belief he was giving you. He's put you up against the wall. Who's told you? Get that out of your head, you know? And he was just brilliant at that. And then Sam taught me how to tackle from the front foot. And I was 35 years old. If I'd have met them guys earlier, maybe I could have played at a higher level. But at the end of the day, I was happy with me lot. I mean, 700 games. I was delighted with... Uh, some. If you had have said to me when I was 19 year old, I was going to be in the game. And I'm 61 now, 42 years later, I'm going to still be in the game. I would have said you were crazy. But uh, I would have probably yeah. thought I was doing rewires or something like that when I'm 35 <laughs> years old. Phil, you could have been like me. I couldn't tackle with any foot. <laughs> <laughs> tackle a fish supper, though. That's the main thing. That's it, yeah. Too many of them. <laughs> uh, if in doubt, out. 
Yeah, that's absolutely. It. <laughs> right, Phil, I've got a question for you. So you hung your boots up in 1996. Did you think then you wanted to go into like coaching and managing? 96, um, it was it was that period of time. I think I go back to what Bruce said uh, to me in 92. Uh, he said, um, I believe you're an electrician. Yeah. Uh, I believe you have your own pub. Yeah. You have your own restaurant. Yeah. And I had businesses. I was running businesses as well as football, you know, and it was, it was one of them where football, two hours a day, it's just not enough. I just wanted to fill me, fill me life, you know. Yeah. And um, he just said, get your coaching badges done. Get your coaching badges. Don't give yourself away to the game. And, and I, I had to think about what he was saying. I, what do you mean by that? He said, well, you've been a captain uh, in every changing room since you were 23 years old. Uh, and you're going to give that away. He said, start doing your badges. You'll never know where it takes you. And lo and behold, I started my badges when I was 32. And when 36, I bumped into 35, 36, I bumped into Sam. And then 37, I'm player coach. 38, I'm coach at, at Bolton Wanderers. And the rest is history, as it were. But um, I didn't think when I was 32 year old, I was going to be still in the game. I thought, I, you know, I was I was ploughing a lane outside of the game of football. I was on me. I was, everybody used to retire at 35. The PFA, go back to the union, they had a retirement age at 35. You know, so it was one of them where you got your pension at 35. It doesn't make any sense. Mm. Makes no sense whatsoever. If you're putting into a pension scheme, if you don't realise it until you're 40, there's another five years at realising a pension. So all of them things were, I think the, the game of football was just a little bit not really um, forward thinking in them days. And uh, and the people that have come into the game now are, are really forward thinking. And I, I believed that then when I started doing my badges, I thought, yeah, this is for me. Uh, I felt comfortable on a field of play. I felt comfortable at telling people what to do. Um, and I felt comfortable at coaching. Not the FA way, not necessarily the FA way, because they always wanted you to wear the right gear and put the right clothes on and stuff like that. What the hell's that got to do with it? If you're saying the right words, surely that's more important than wearing the right gear, you know? I, when I done my FA um, UEFA B licence, I um, didn't have my socks pulled up. And I got a, a yeah. I got I fouled the first time because I never had my socks. And I, I, could, I was like, are you, are you joking? And I was like, no, you, it, it, you have to keep the socks. You had to have your shirt tucked in. You had to have your uh, socks pulled up. You had the boots on. And it, the reason I was sort of socks, I can't remember I don't, I don't wear socks normally. So I, I did them up. And they said when I done the final mark, they said that I've done a coaching eleven v eleven um, attacking uh, from bringing the ball from midfield to attack, and um, they said yeah, it was all fine, but unfortunately you haven't got your socks up. And I was like, what? This is ridiculous. yeah. I yeah. Didn't get the whole test again just as my socks weren't pulled up. I mean that was the way for B, and you're thinking, well, this is at like a never level. How how is it such a small thing has made an impact on on coaching? It's ridiculous. Yeah, well, the ear license. If I go back to the ear license, and I'm talking Charles Hughes and all that, you know, they were they were running the uh, the association then. And there's a lad called Chris Sully who I eventually worked with at Bolton Wanderers. He was the academy director at Bolton. There's only a little fella, Chris Sully. I don't, I don't remember. He left back. He used to play for Blackburn. Um, he's a he's a London boy. He's a Cockney lad. Uh, I think he might have started early doors at places like Redden or somewhere like that. Anyway, long story short, he was doing um, um, he was he was doing. Um, back post defending and uh, he had against him a coach that was working on attacking the back post right so attacking the back post Chris Sully little fella he's only a five foot six and he had three six foot nine giants at the back post coming in powering the ball into the back of the net and he just 
he threw his gloves down, he threw his book down, he threw it, he just said, this is not for me. And Charles Hughes said, get him out. He's eventually got the pro license, he was eventually academy director, but he's just had an opinion and there's nothing wrong with that. That's what the game's all about. Not allowed that when you're doing your FA badges, are you, unfortunately? Um, but going back to Bolton, so obviously you went in, you were there with Sam Allardyce at the time, um, and Bolton had one of their best periods in terms, I think, names and players. You had the foreign influx started to come in. What was it like, you know, JJ Kocha, Jukayev, Campo, Ibrahim Bar, Jardel, her, I mean, I, I could go on. At that time coming in, especially from more like, up north and sort of the playing style and the players that you had, how did that change in terms of clicks, in terms of coaching, how did that work? And what did you think? I mean, seeing all these big names. It was it was brilliant when it, uh, when it first happened. Um, it was just something that you, you see nowadays in the modern day game. But we started probably at the forefront of that. I would have said Sam was at the forefront of that, the way he um, managed the transfer loan market. Um, and, it, you know, you can see the transfer loan market now and every guy on this, this call will be saying, yeah, we've got this, we've got that, we've got the other. And it, it works. But then, in them days... It was brilliant the way Sam did it. You know, it was at the forefront of the game to get a player like JJ Kocha from PSG. Wow! And I'm I'm walking him round. We'd we'd moved to the Reebok Stadium by then, uh, and Sam was on his holidays in the summer. He was in uh, a couple of weeks in Spain, and I get a phone call from Phil Gardside to come down to the Reebok Stadium. We've got JJ Kocha in the in the, um, in the boardroom, and I went uh, and. Uh, What's he? What's he doing here? <laughs> what's he doing here? Is he buying the club? I was thinking he's buying the club. He went. Um, no, he's gonna. He's he signed a two-year deal. He's penning a two-year deal. So I just had to sell Bolton to him. Well, he's just come from Paris to Bolton. How the hell am I going to sell it to? Him? Um, but it was um, it was brilliant. You know, Sam just managed to utilize this transfer loan market. Fantastic, brilliant invention. Uh, and as I say, you know, you mentioned five or six players that you've not even mentioned: Fernando Hierro, and, you know, um, El Hadjouf. You know, people, people were they were great players, great players, and we managed to get them. Once you got the first one, and the first one in was uh, was Yorkayev, and he's a World Cup winner. Once the first one come, and Sam, I'm telling you, he didn't even go to the airport to meet him. He sent he sent the academy director at the time um, with a laptop. And the laptop met Yuri Yorkayev at the airport in France. No word of a lie this. So he sat down in the airport with the academy director and this laptop comes up and all of a sudden Sam Allardyce's face comes in. And he's, he's now, what do you want to know about the club, Yuri? Just tell me what you want to know. He said, I can't come and see it because I'm trying to build this, blah, blah, blah. So he's spieling, he's spieling from this laptop. I want to see the training ground. Bang. Picture comes up the training ground, and now it's a live show of the training ground. And it was a, it was a place where uh, we transformed it from almost like a working class club environment um, to um, to a state of the art training ground. You know, modern day training grounds nowadays are ten a penny, and they spend a hundred million. We were spending. This is no exaggeration. We we sell um, Ada Good Johnson to Chelsea for four million quid. Sam just says to Phil Gard said, I need 150 grand to do the changing room. Gets 150 grand. So he wasn't bothered about the money for to buy players in, bring players in. Just want to improve the training ground. Because the players that he's leaving behind, we need to give them something. We sell Klaus Jensen, three and a half million, I think it was to Charlton or somewhere like that. Klaus Jensen, 100 grand into the training ground. Alan Thompson, Arsene Villa, 
hundred grand into the training ground. And all of a sudden, every time a big player was leaving us for a lot of money, we were just improving that facility that every time a player came to it, they couldn't believe it. It was, it was ahead of the game. But to get all of them players and to, to go on the training ground with them every day and coach them, they didn't need much coaching. But they did need education uh, with regards to sports science. And what I mean by that, and we can all talk about sports science now, we were, I'm talking 20 years ago now. 20 years ago, we were at the forefront of ProZone. We were at the f- forefront of um, psychology. We were at the f- forefront of the environment. We were at the forefront of a lot of things, you know. And uh, hats off to Sam for that, for, for improving it every time. Instead of spending, okay, you sell a player for four million and you spend two million on another player who comes in and disrupts everything, you may as well get that free transfer and you may as well get that um, player who's not quite hit it off and you're getting them on loan to try and prove a point to the team that he's leaving, you know, to come into a new environment and be a part of something. And honestly, it was, it was a great place to be at, the t- at that time. Uh, but I always want. Are you sad to see Bolton where they are now, Phil? Or? Oh, it's it's horrendous. It really oh, is. It's oh, um, in my opinion, I think they're going to go up. They, there's possibly absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There's no no doubt in my mind. Um, I think um, before I went to India this year, um, BBC asked me, Radio Manchester asked me to do a game, and it was Bolton against um, Cambridge. Now I'm thinking about Cambridge back in the day. Uh, and that was one of our big games. What <laughs> we won in the FA Cup, and it actually kept Sam in a job. Ada Good Johnson scored the, the equalising goal. They came back to ours, and we beat them. And we went on a cup run, and straight away Sam he stayed in he stayed in work because of that cup run. But we were we were one nil down against Cambridge, and down to ten men. Mike Whitlow, Whitlow got sent off, and I'm telling you, he was looking at me in a dugout, and he said, "Brownie, we're in trouble here." And and we actually got an equaliser, and the rest is history, as it were. Um, but I watched Bolton that day and I thought, wow, they've invested well. You know, they've got a good enough team. Then they invested a little bit more in January. And now, maybe without the crowd, that could be the answer. There's a lot of teams that are doing well without a crowd. And that's the reason being is the pressure's off. And it's it's a generic thing. You know, it's like if you're playing for Manchester United, it's not 75,000 there. It's not really playing for Manchester United. You're just wearing the badge. You're just wearing the shirt. You want 70,000 like from London, though, Phil. You've got to remember that. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Can I just ask you a quick question about those players, um, those players Paul mentioned, Phil? Um, last night we spoke about flops. And at Bolton, when time you was there, the one that springs to my mind is Mario Jardel. Now, when he was at Sporting Lisbon, he was like a goal machine. Um, what happened to him, mate? I mean, he comes to Bolton, he put a lot of weight on, and he—he's he, just like nothing happened for him at all, did it? Yeah, it was not. It wasn't. He came to Bolton and put the weight on. What he did was he went to. Um, he obviously came from Brazil, uh, from the sticks in Brazil. By the way, he was—he was. He was okay. um, what a great guy! First and foremost, what a great guy, Fun, fabulous guy. Uh, but like I say, he went to Sporting Lisbon, won the Golden Boot Award. Yeah, yeah. Then went yeah. to Galatasaray. He went to your restaurant. Galat- he went. <laughs> Went to Galatasaray, he won the Golden Boot Award again. You think he got something like 44 goals in 41 games for Galatasaray? Yeah. But then he found the devil, uh, the uh, the demon in uh, drugs. Um, okay. And, and we got him on the downward spiral. He was in a bad place when he came to us. So we tried to rebuild him. Uh, we, I remember taking him to Portugal. We took him to Portugal. And before pre-season started, we had... Seven days intense training on a on a one to five basis. We had five staff there and one just Mario Jardel, and we tried to get him up to speed because we knew the players would come back in a good in a good shape. So he had to be somewhere near. 
What a finisher. What yeah. a finisher. He had the toe punt. You know the toe poke? He had the toe punt off to a tee. He would stick in the top corner in training and you'd go, what? Where's this kid come from? But he was just, he was a wreck of a, of a, a specimen, of an athlete. Mm. And, and he, he was broken. That's the best description I could give him. He was broken and we tried to piece him together and we just couldn't do it. You know, he was just, he was beyond yeah. that. And it was after, after a year Bolton that he retired and went back to Brazil. It's a shame, isn't it, really? He's Very much talent, so. right? Yeah. Holland? I'm going to go back to when uh, the, the Acotchas of the world turned up in Bolton. Did you have to change uh, training or diets and stuff within the squad to, uh, to adjust to these players turning up? Some, um, some we did, some we didn't. Uh, some were quite well-versed at it. Um, the, one, the one thing we did do is we pro- provided a platform for them. And what I mean by that is, um, you mentioned JJ Okocha there. After about four games, after about four games in the Premier League, JJ was not the player that we brought in. And the smile had gone. Um, he was just a shell of a man. So we decided to investigate a little bit further, and, and it, it's all history now. But in hindsight, his family um, was still stuck in Paris. Uh, some of them were stuck in Nigeria. He wanted to bring them across. Um, he had no uh, furniture in his in his uh, in his house. All of these things, you may think to yourself, "Well, hold on a second. He's a grown man. Why doesn't he just get?" So we decided not to employ one, but two player liaison officers. And uh, one, was a, one was a man, one was a woman. So whenever JJ's missus came over, the woman helped with whatever she needed. Uh, sorry, whenever the man... Quickly, one second. But just so you know you say you were the captain for like... All you... Do you not think a captain should step in and then like try and help that person at that point? There's, there's times you can. There's times where, you know, that sometimes the captain might be focusing on his own job, on his own, you know... Just having a, a few drinks, you know, back in the old days, but having a few drinks with the, with a the team, you get to know people a little bit better. We get that, but the modern day game had gone into that almost, you, you've killed them days out, you know, because the alcohol side of things was was being, I mean, you you look at Arsenal when Wenger came in in the, in the late 90s, alcohol just went out the game all, all together. Uh, we did have our times together. We did have a great camaraderie, but we had to find out a little bit more about the about the the general lives of, of each player and what they want and what they wanted, you know. So it was important. So when one of the player liaison officers went back to JJ's house, he's got a beautiful seven bedroom house. Everybody on this call would have given the lives for it, and uh, you'd go, no furniture. There's one TV on the wall. He's sitting on he's sitting on a cushion. He hasn't got his dogs. He hasn't got his family. He hasn't got his wife. He didn't have his bank account sorted. That's why the smile had gone from his face. Not the fact that he couldn't play football. My word, after we provided all this, we got the player that we thought we were going to get. And when he smiles, by the way, you, but he plays wonderful football. He played unbelievable football. And when Graham Sooner said that we, we were playing long ball on match of the day, I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I think, I think I think Allardyce, starting off, I think Allardyce under the Bolton regime, and, and since that, I think he's been tarred with a very unfair brush. I, we had a podcast talk about Wenger changing the game, and I said, it's funny, isn't it? Because Wenger came in and made all these changes, but no one seems to remember what Sam Allardyce did with Prozone and using championship managers' stats for scouting, 
um, Viber plates in the later uh, Bolton having played in pre in the Tunnel One Viber machines. All this stuff doesn't get mentioned when you, you think Stan Dice. People just go wheeler and dealer and long ball. And I, I think it's always been very unfair of, yeah. you don't manage JJ Clutcher, you're a Jurkay, all the players you said and be just a long ball merchant because they wouldn't come to the club. No matter no. how much you make them smile, they're not going to come and just have a ball rooted past them in midfield. Um, and by the way, by the way, before you go any further, Paul, I think one of the best exponents of a long ball and I'm not talking about a channel ball. Channel ball is an English thing, isn't it? You stick it in the channel, everybody knows what you're talking about. But the best diagonal ball in the game, Ivan Campo or Fernando Hierro. And both of them, Spanish centre-halves, Sam wouldn't have them anywhere near a back four. He said, get them in front. Get them in, too, much, too much risk taken. Get them in front. But as soon as they got the ball, you moved and they would put it on a sixpence, on a diagonal. So it was never identified as a, chan- a long ball or a channel ball. It was a great diagonal. Unbelievable. Crazy, isn't it? Some training ground stories. Spill the beans, Phil. Come on. There must have been something that you saw on the training ground. It's just, just with all these players, now you had the, the old school kind of mentality of Bolton <laughs> players, and then you had the, the foreign lads coming in. There must have been some times where there's just, just some absolute mental stories that you could spill for us here. <laughs> there's loads. There's loads, but I can't <laughs> spill them. Um, the, best, the best one, I would say, where Ivan Campbell was concerned, Ivan, Ivan was a little... Well, he wasn't a little bit of a loose cannon. He was a loose cannon. He was crazy. And um, and he, <laughs> it was one of them, we we got beat in the Premier League. I think we got beat 4-1 by Southampton. And we had we had done everything, you know. You talk about being ahead of the game. This is what Sam used to do, right? How much will um, a hotel and a, um, a coach journey cost? Then he'd equate it to a private jet. Then he would equate it to a private jet that was big enough to carry maybe 300 supporters. Then he would price it up. This was him doing it, by the way. Then he would price it up, each supporter, so that we were free. So we were getting it free. So we'd get there, and how he'd sell it to people was that he would give you his tactical assessment in the airport lounge before you were going to Southampton. He would give you his tactical assessment to 300 people on a flip chart. Then he would give you the team. So you're going there as a, as a Bolton Wonder supporter, knowing full well what the team's going to be before before any of the media or anything like that. You know, you could do whatever you wanted wanted with it. It was it was phenomenally ahead of the game, and it just had that trust about it. You know, the supporters were like, "We've got the team. We're part of." You know, and so they would be flying down to something. But anyway, long story short, we got beat four one. So so much for the so much for the tactical awareness. Um, so we're on a we're on a bus that's met the plane in Manchester Airport, and it's now. Oh dear me! We're talking half one in the morning. It was a midweek game. We're talking half one in the morning, and Sam said to me, uh, uh, "Brownie, um, tell the players seven o'clock in the video room at the training ground." And I went, "What?" He went, "Tell the players seven o'clock, seven o'clock tomorrow morning in the video room." So I walked to the through the coach. And I just said to every one of the players, seven o'clock tomorrow morning, training ground, video room. And uh, everyone nodding, because the new Sam would kick off if not. Everyone nodding. Campbell just said, excuse me? I said, seven o'clock tomorrow morning. If you have a problem, there's the manager at the front. And, that, and I left him to it. He said, you won't see me at seven o'clock. I said, well, whatever. Anyway, long story short, 8.30, Ivan Campbell rolls in. The rest of the players... To a tee, 
per minute. They were there at seven o'clock and we were doing a video session, which lasted four hours because of Campo turning up, turning up late. Campo was done two weeks' wages for that. He got done two weeks' wages. Now, that is a story that probably would never have got out in them days. It's probably been out in the circuits now. But um, he was just... Sam, Sam was... It doesn't matter who you were. This is what we're doing, you know? And everybody at the start bought into it. So results shouldn't change it. Results shouldn't change it. Results shouldn't change the effect that you're going to have on the game. And... Um, Campbell couldn't quite work that one out. But as soon as, a, soon as Fernando Hierro walked into the training ground at Bolton Wanderers as a new signing, what a difference Ivan Campbell was. He had so much respect for this guy. It was unreal. And it was like handling a, a crazy madman and then all of a sudden handling a baby in your arms. It was just so easy to manage once Fernando Hierro walked in. Amazing. Uh, Millie, you had a question for Phil. Yeah, I was going to go back to early part of the managerial caretaker role. Am I right in saying you took caretaker off of Colin Todd when he left? I did, yes. Yeah, so I, I'm actually currently playing in a Vets team and there was a guy who was on the books with you called Luke Statton. Oh, yeah. He was, he was a young lad from Blackburn. he come to Bolton. That's right. Yeah, and from speaking to him and obviously done a bit of research on yourself, he said, in the training ground, on the pitch, you was full of enthusiasm, leadership, obviously being the captain and stuff like that. And fair play to him. He said, there's one thing, I cannot give you any dirt, any questions to ask Brownie. That stays on the training <laughs> ground. <laughs> I, was try, I was trying my best to get something out of him. And he said, no, that stays in the training ground. It so was uh, on, on that was... note... Do you think that's gone from the game, that team bond training ground bond that you had when nothing was coming out of the changing room? I think that's gone because of the modern, you know, modern day, the media side of things, the social media side of things is so important to a lot of players from an individual point of view. I mean, the days of, of when we used to say leave the mobile phones outside the door to eventually going through that period where mobile phones were allowed in the changing rooms and you know, you weren't even finding people if the if the mobile phones went off. Now, for me, it's wrong. You know, it's it, you've got to be focused for an hour and a half. That's all we're asking for. An hour and a half preparation before the game, an hour and a half during the game, and then do whatever you want to do after the game. You know, and and that reactive response that players have got now that goes straight to the mobile phones. And don't get me wrong, it's going to get worse for sure. You know, it's all part and parcel of the game nowadays. I mean. You know, watched England the other night and straight away everybody's talking about Twitter and Facebook straight away afterwards. And it's it's ridiculous. You know, at the end of the day, Albania, good, bad or indifferent, give us a game. Now, mm. social media could ruin that if one player just said they were better than us. You know, for instance, yeah. you know, if one player came out, Harry Kane sort of stuttered a wee bit because of the pandemic. You know, there was a six, seven second delay on the questions. And he looked like he was a little bit uncomfortable with it. Straight away, you've got a problem with, with Harry Kane. He's a world-class player for England. You know, he's, he's a world-class player. He can probably walk into any team outside of Spurs now. And anybody will pay £150 million for him. But as soon as he looked a little bit uncomfortable, I thought, probably social media will pick up on this and say it's a negative. And yet it's not. It's just a pandemic. It's, it's the way it is. It's two games away from home. We've won, won five. It should have been ten. We've won one-two. We've won both games. It's how we play against Poland now. 
you know so it's really difficult for a yeah it, it, it's changed the face of, of the world of football unrecognizable but nothing we can do about it so on the so when you was taken over as the caretaker uh, the youth and the younger players that were coming through into the Bolton team do you think they got the chance that they could have had in today's game or did you need to stabilize the team and get the points on the board well it, it was an important time because you know like I had two years with Toddy we got promoted out of sight uh, in the first season together and then we got relegated from the Premier League on the last day of the season um, and then we're coming into a third season together and, and Colin went sort of a little bit um, negative himself you know because he loved playing he loved the, the beautiful game he was a uh, he was really into playing standards not necessarily the way Sam is about uh, sports science or anything like that Colin would embrace the one who could play or the ones who could play and then consequently when we had a couple of dodgy results at the start of the season I thought maybe the changing rooms lost its way um and we had a, a good stronghold of Danish players, if I remember rightly, you know, Michael Johansson, Klaus Jensen, Per Fransen, you know, and they were all brought in by Colin Todd. And they were all about professionalism, you know. So if anybody, you know, coming through the ranks was going to learn, you, they were going to learn from the group of players, the group of senior players that were had at the, at the club at the time. Uh, but then when I got, I got given the opportunity, four or five games I had, um, I just thought... Colin had lost. Colin Todd had lost his way with the players, and it wasn't going to be difficult to get that back because I, I knew we were a good team. I knew we were a good team. I just thought Colin had maybe given up on them, maybe given up on them, and that's the reason why you know uh, we did so well to stabilise and get results. But it wasn't at that moment in time for me. It wasn't about kids coming through. That moment in time was about me getting my first chance as a manager. Now down the lane. That might have been a different argument, but I've all, always believed in the younger players. I've always believed in giving, as soon as I went to Derby County, my first job I did at Derby County, I gave three 17-year-olds um, pro contracts. And then 17-year-olds, I gave pro contacts uh, to Lewin Nyatanga, Giles Barnes and Lionel Ainsworth. I'll never forget them. They're still, they were still playing in the game at 34, 35-year-old. Did did you go to watch all the the under like the, all the, the games? Did did you go and do that, or, or is that like not not your job, but you employ someone else to go and do that, and they revert back to you? I've always had um, a training ground where I believe same at South End as well at, at Bolton, where your kids on a Saturday morning, if they're playing on a Saturday morning, all the coaching staff go, all the coaching staff, not not just the academy director, oh, academy uh, coaches. Your first team coach, your assistant manager, uh, your, your strength and conditioning, they should all be going to them games because they're 14, 15, 16-year-old. If you're lucky to be in work for three years or four years or five years at one club, which I've done on two, two or three occasions, if you're lucky enough to be in there, then the 15-year-old will be 20 by the time, you know, by definition, by the time you leave. Yeah. So you may have two or three years of him as a as a pro footballer. So you cannot ignore that. You have to go. That's part of it. That's a big part of your job, in my opinion. I think it's really important. I mean, I'm looking over your career. I'm, I, I haven't got the exact number, but I think it was over 70 young players in your career you've given a first team opportunity to, which is pretty high considering, you know, places like Hull when you're kind of banding together and trying to... You haven't got the, the, the luxury to rely on young players 
when you're in such high pressure jobs constantly so, you know but you gave over 70 players there might be more but I, I could find about 70 from looking at your career I mean that's quite a phenomenal amount of people that you gave first team debuts to or had in, integrated that someone else had come in but you stuck with these young players you know so well, if you else. if you if you look at a couple of examples and, and we'll talk about a couple of examples at Hull City you mentioned Hull City if you mention one player that everybody will know is be Fraser Campbell now Fraser Campbell we did a um, a job on Sir Alex Ferguson with regards to Fraser Campbell because we had to court him big time. You know, I had Brian Horton as my assistant manager. Him and Brian Horton and and, um, and Sir Alex Ferguson were, were toe to toe when he was Man City boss and he was Man United boss, obviously. So there's massive respect for each other. They're both members of the thousand, you know, thousand games club. Um, so there's great respect for him. And I was saying to Brian, Brian, come on, do a turn on, on Sir Alex, see if we can get Fraser Campbell out. And he kept on saying, no, we're, we're still in the, um, what the cup was called at the time, but it's the League Cup. I can't remember what it was called. He said, we're, st- we're still in that cup. And, it, you know, he's me, he's me first striker in the cup at Manchester United. So he's not made his league debut, but he's, he's me first striker in the cup. So I'm saying, well, here we go. Um, we'll go to A-Tree races. We're not playing until the Sunday. We're going to A-Tree races on the Thursday. And United had been knocked out of the... League Cup on the Wednesday night and Sir Alex Ferguson was at Aintree Races and we walked into the owners and trainers bar and he's sitting there with his missus and that we're going across there myself the chairman and Brian Horton have just said uh, we're lucky last night yeah he said we didn't really show up you know the players didn't play well I said what about Fraser Campbell you can have him couldn't believe it <laughs> you, you can have him that's a true story so obviously on loan but um so we take Fraser Campbell on loan and the rest is history, but we gave him a start in his career, you know, because he wasn't going to get as many games as what he got in the Premier League at Hull City. He wasn't going to get that at United, as a, as a mention to, would be um, Liam Cooper. Well done. So Liam, Liam Cooper is 17-year-old and the academy directors at, um, at Hull City were really knocking at my door saying that this kid's a, a player, this kid needs a pro contract, we need to look after him, Leeds United are sniffing, such and such is sniffing, and this, that, and the other. And I knew the two lads weren't doing a turn on me. Um, they weren't sort of saying it because it, it enhanced their reputation or it bolsters their reputation because we've got another player through the academy and all of that rubbish. So I just said, yeah, okay, no problem. So we gave him a pro contract, and less than a week later, I gave him a debut. <laughs> And it was at Liverpool, and we got beat six at Liverpool on his debut, Liam Cooper. And um, I'll never forget it. I thought I'd killed the kid. I thought I'd, I'd wrecked his career before it even started. But look at him now. He's playing regular football for Leeds United in the Premier League. And sometimes them real bulls, you know, that big shock to your system. Sometimes it works for you. Sometimes... Others don't come back from it. Mm. But you never know. You never know. So you're taking a little bit of a chance. Of course you are. But at the same time, you recognise that character. I used to love watching the young players come into me, uh, into my office at, um, at Hull City because I'd, we had a, an old cricket ground, uh, which was the training ground. And it was an old pavilion and, and we designed it around presentations and canteens and stuff like that. And eventually got this a decent sized office and whenever I got at his, his office, I used to invite the young kids in when they were signing contracts. And whenever they walked through the door with an agent, I just chased them, get out. And uh, they were like, what do you mean? Go and bring your mum and dad. Bring your mother and father, get the agent out. And sure enough, they'd come back with the mother and father. And 
they'd get a better deal. That's <laughs> the way I worked it. You know, it was just, not, oh. I'm not totally against agents, but I'm just, you, you see what they're all about. They're not really about the future of the kid. They're about him making his debut and getting more money and all that. You want to see the mother and father. You want to see what they're all about. And then you see the kid. <coughs> but I think something that's definitely gone now from, from the game is, is that whole personal touch from the parents or knowing the person and the family. I suppose that goes hand in hand with the foreign imports in terms of you looking at, at the individual more and, and their background opposed to saying bringing mum and dad in at a younger age. So uh, you went to Hull, you had a, a brief spell at Derby, then you moved on to Hull. And people seem to forget when you went to Hull, they were finished 21st that season before you came in. And in your first season, that's it. You finished third and you're in the Premier League. Um, when you went to Hull, was that the ambition? Was that the target that was set to, to reach the Premier League? Because I know in an interview you said you saw the ambition of the club from the outside looking in. Was that the belief in the club that you're going to go there and, and they want you to get promoted? Obviously, you want to get up. But was that your number one target? Was Phil, you're going to come in and we want to get to number one in, 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 you know, in the Premier League? What, what was that like? When I first went to, to Hull, Adam Pearson was, um, was the owner, chairman. And um, the club was for sale. I didn't know it was for sale. Um, but it was it was for sale, but it was only for sale as a championship club. Um, if it had gone down to the first division, there's not a chance of them selling it because the the, the disparity between the, the two sales figures were too big. They're too big for the owner. So anyway, um, that first season, uh, I first came in with Phil Parkinson. Phil Parkinson was the manager. And uh, Adam Pearson brought me in as first team coach. So I went on the training ground and... Um, uh, my job was to keep Phil Parkinson in work because he was under a lot of pressure. We, we'd gone in there, the bottom of the division, um, languishing at the bottom, and uh, we had to survive. We had to make sure that we survived. Anyway, that first year, we did finish 21st, which was one place above the relegation zone. And the day that we sealed survival in the championship, we beat Cardiff City 1-0 at their place. Ninian, it was the old Ninian Park. And I got introduced to the new owners on the pitch, walking around, you know, uh, walking around the because long story, Legion Phil, got relegated. You know, obviously Phil Parkinson, he then got he got sacked pretty much. Yeah. Do you feel like that he thought that you got him out of the job? Um, I probably think there was a bit of him saying that. Yeah, I but don't know how, I don't know your relationship with, with him. I, I'm, so that's why I'm asking. Um, yeah. No, I've, I've locked horns with Phil many, many times, you know, from, from a managerial perspective, you know. And I, I said to him, I'm not after your job. I am after keeping you in your job. That's, that's my job. I think that looks better on your CV than what you replaced the manager who got the sack, you know. Yeah. But I didn't replace him straight away. I didn't replace him um, by any stretch of imagination straight away. It was the, one of the longest uh, caretaker roles. I didn't get the, I, I don't think I got the job until the new year. It was um, and, and Phil didn't, yeah. And Phil didn't get the sack, and I think it was October. So nine, ten games, maybe been more. Anyway, um, I get the I get the position till the end of the season, and um, and we survive on the second last day, and uh, I get introduced to the new owners. So that's a precarious position, isn't it? What do the new owners want? Well, they've been doing due diligence on me for seventeen games. I didn't know any of, any of this because it's not my business or not not my position, and probably would have put me up. I don't know. Um, so 17 games due diligence and as you said yeah we like what we see we want you to manage the club uh, you've got a three year plan to get you to get this club in the Premier League three years wow so um, 
Started off 10 games. We were just above the relegation zone. Halfway through, we're mid-table. Um, with about 10 games to go, we're knocking at the door of the playoffs. And it was just a progression all season. Probably three games to go, we should have got automatic promotion. But then we hit a, a rocky spell. We went Sheffield United, got beat off Sheffield United uh, at their place uh, where both my centre-halves uh, got injured before the game. Anyway, the um, and then we got in the playoffs and obviously the rest is history. Um, and it was a, it was wonderful. But at the time, when when the owners were saying, when, when I first got the... Uh, got the job, it was like, you've got three years to get in the Premier League. After 10 games, you've got three years to get in the Premier League. <laughs> after 25, after 25 games, it was like, be nice to make, be nice to make the playoffs, wouldn't it? <laughs> after, after 35 games, it's like, automatic promotion wouldn't be a break. <laughs> so, it just, uh, the goal, the goal post moved, didn't it? The, yeah. the, the move with the times. As they do, as they do. Oh, Harper? Oh, no, yeah, well, so I was, uh, one of the questions I was going to ask you, Phil. So obviously, when you inherit, like when you took over Hull, I said, so you must have had like you had characters in that. So you had like Dean Windass, Craig Fagan, uh, Fraser Campbell, Bridges, Akotcha. I think Barnby was at the same. Was Nick Barnby there as well? But, yeah. Like what was what was it like training those guys? Like or, or like what was it? Was it what, did they have like egos or was it were they all pretty like professional or? Was it like listen? Like, you let people do what they wanted to do, like the on their coaches, and then and you get to say that because obviously the, I, I played in teams before, and if someone thinks that they're better than the rest, that can cause friction amongst. It can, it can, but it was a the, the great level. I think was was the fact that you mentioned two players there, Nicky Barnby and, and Dean Windus. They were local lads, and both had um, varying varied careers. You know, great success, Nicky Barnby, great England player. Uh, Dino was always a scally, but played at the highest level and, and, and made the best of his ability as a as a, as a hold up player. Um, there was a, there was a common denominator in that change room, a lad called Ian Ashby, who had been captain right the way through from the second through to the, the Premier League, captain every year. So he'd been at the club for four or five years, and he'd been through hell. You know, he, he personally sort of dragged the team forward, um, and there was a good, strong, solid. English background and, and more importantly Hull uh, albeit Ian Ashby was from the Midlands um, he was a, a, a sort of a member of the Hull family now um, he really had a big say in the matter and, and I used to trust them three in particular um, certainly when we were bringing in different players certainly when we were bringing in precocious talent if you want to call it certainly when you're bringing in players that on the outside looking in don't work as hard as them three but I've got better skills than them three if you, if you want to go that way but we had an unwritten law, you know, it was an unwritten rule that um, he, the manager wasn't frightened to leave you out if you weren't if you weren't pulling up. Way, yeah, yeah if you were pulling your weight, if you weren't pulling up trees, I wasn't frightened to leave them out. I wasn't frightened to giving them it on the on the training ground. I think that was the respect we all had for each other, you know. Um, when we came to work, we worked, and when we came to, to play, we played hard, you know. Did those and, players have in their like? You- Contracts like they're crazy this day and age. Did was there anyone that like bizarre contracts say, Well, I have to play if I'm fully fit. I ha- I've got to play. Blah blah. Any any of it? Like- no, nothing like that at all. I wouldn't. I wouldn't allow that. Um, so that that would be from me up. You know, so it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be from the chairman or the owner down. That would be. I'd be. I'd be stopping that from coming at me because I, I don't think that's fair. Um, and I, I certainly know that if anybody found that out, you would lose your respect as a manager. You know, one hundred percent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so. <laughs> 
So you wouldn't have got a trout farm for Gaza, no? <laughs> Strangely <laughs> enough, when you when you're talking like that, one of the biggest regrets that I've got where Hull was concerned, I probably still would have been there, was Bobby Zamora. After we signed Jimmy Bullard, um, the, the, Jimmy wasn't a regret. Jimmy just got injured that first game. Scotty Parker took him out. It was the second time Scotty Parker had done it. And it wasn't a nasty tackle. He'd gone sliding in. Jimmy went up in the air and he landed on his knee. And, uh, and, and he went over on, on uh, Scotty Parker's leg, you know. So it was one of them awful days if you're a, a player. But more importantly, I've just in, invested five million on him. So I'm looking at my owner thinking, wow, I'm in trouble here. But what we've done is we've blown the, uh, the average wage um, at Hull over the years. We've just gone up and notch up and notch up and we kept on going. And, and I just wanted to keep improving and keep on, keep on um, getting better, you know, and, and not trying to rub people's face in it, you know, because it was a working class area in Hull. Uh, you're paying somebody 40 grand a week to a working class man that's been in three generations of deprivation, no fish for 40 years. Three generations, you know, and you're getting you're giving somebody 40 grand a week. And then um, Bobby Zamora came and I took him to the local fish farms and uh, he loved fishing, absolutely loved fishing. And I showed him three or four sites and he was he was in, he was buying, he was coming, but it was more money than Jimmy. Bill, as a Rangers fan, he made the he probably hit Best day ever. forget about the three kids in my life. I've got three kids, don't worry about their births. That day when he scored the winner against Derby, <coughs> he's up there, mate. So just say that, yeah. So, he... but if if Jimmy, if listen, Jimmy had a stayed fit, that would have been great. But if Bobby had a had a come in, I, I went against my principle of keep on improving, and I just said maybe two for the price of one. And instead of Bobby Zamora, I signed Jan Venegov Hesselink and Jose Altador for the same money, right? For the same money. So I got two for one. And that was a big mistake. And it wasn't long after that. I mean, it was less than a year when I lost my job. But them, them players weren't bad players. They were just, Jan was second well, class. Well, so lot, lot, uh, on some, yesterday we done a podcast. Uh, we're talking about flops in the 90s and things like that. It's quite hard to say who is a flop, who isn't a flop. Brilliant in the year when you signed them, but they never, they never made it, obviously, when you signed them. And then the following year, they could have been great. So... <laughs> Like, Phil, what, they were what, both internationals as well, weren't they? They were both American what, and Dutch internationals. Well, if, if again, the Jan Venegor of Hessling, I'm not being disrespectful of Scotland yet, he was pulling up trees for Celtic the year earlier. And mm. But you're coming into the Premier League and it's it's just that one step up, you know? It's almost like I'm saying Scottish football, their Scottish Premier League is probably equivalent to our championship, but that's been ultra negative of Scottish football because you've got two teams in there that could probably pit their wits no problem in the English Premier League and that's Celtic and Rangers but if I take it back to he's pulling up trees for Celtic then another year and he was 33 maybe 34 mm. and maybe got him at the wrong time but the other kid Josie Altidore was the um, a £10 million signing um, he went Southern as well didn't he to Spain, he, he was in. Uh, where did he, who did he sign for? Um, I can't remember who we got him from. A Spanish team, um, Celta Vigo. Was it Celta Vigo? I think it may have been. Anyway, long story short, he's he's not playing in Celta Vigo's team, so we get him on a million quid loan. So we get him for a year on loan, but he's he's got. He was such an arrogant lad. He was probably thinking he was better than Hull, 
Mm. And hold, hold on a second. You've gone from America being America's big sunshine boy. You've gone to Spanish football. They're not entertaining you. You come to Hull. You're not in me starting 11. You've got the penny's got to be dropping somewhere along yeah. the line with regards to you. Yeah, you not with down regards there, to down there. He obviously didn't do that, no? Well, um, the end was uh, at the end of that season for me, you know, as opposed to them. So, anyway, that's life. <laughs> Just a, a few more. In terms of um, the training ground, and again, we asked you at Bolton, obviously Dean Windass is quite a character. Is there anyone that you, any story you can remember that was quite uh, outrageous or you clashed with on the training? If anyone you had a real clash with or personalities that came in or you just thought, oh, I, just, uh, I don't like this lad. How long have you got, Phil? That's a loaded, <laughs> loaded question. You, you can't not like players. You've got to love them. <laughs> um, I've, got, I've got loads of stories, but I just, I just can't tell you them. Um, we, um, many a time, I mean, it, it has to be said that uh, sometimes the best um, times that I've had are self-managing changing rooms, and that's strength of character. And that's not somebody that's just going to come knocking at my door and saying, oh, by the way, Gaffer, he's doing this, he's doing that, this is happening, This because there's always an ulterior motive where that's concerned. So I don't want that, but I want, I'd like to think that the majority of the successful changing rooms that I've had they look after each other inside that change room. And if until I need to come in, if I don't need to come in, then that's fine. If I need to come in, it's too late. And uh, I don't know if you remember the, um, the Women's Institute uh, had a march on the Humber Bridge and we had been beaten. I can't remember who had been beaten off. Everton, I think it was, and uh, on the Sunday. And we came in on the Monday. We're doing a warm down. And what I used to do on, on the, uh, for a warm down would be a walk and a jog across the Humber Bridge. It's a couple of miles either way. Uh, you had a little bit of a spring in the uh, in the bridge and a beautiful, beautiful bridge, beautiful sight. So we used to go there for a warm down anyway. Cut long story short. I couldn't go to this warm down because I, I was doing match analysis of the game. And um, I get a phone call from the assistant manager and he went, uh, got a problem, gaffer. Go on. Uh Nicky Barnby and Jimmy Bullard have started fighting. And I, and I said, what's the problem there? You know, I like, I like a fight. Well, I used to not encourage it, but I used, to, I used to like it when people stood up for what they stood up for, you know? Um, sometimes if you've got to say something, say it. Uh, I, didn't mind, I, didn't, you, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't mind changing rooms like that. Anyway, uh, these two were going hammering tongs. I said, so what's the problem? He said, the Women's Institute were doing a march and there was 250 women watching it on the, on the Humber Bridge. And I went, oh, no. And I turned the radio on and lo and behold, top of the hour, on Radio 5 or whatever it was, there was complaints filing, filing in all over the place. It was embarrassing. <laughs> what was Jimmy like to... I mean, obviously, he's got a big personality now, Bernard. What was he like to coach? I know he's injured quite a lot on your... On your oh, back in his career, he was injured quite often, unfortunately. What was he like to manage? Because obviously, he's a bit of a mad hatter in some respects. But on the train... It's well said, like, you know, I'm mad, a I'm mad hatter. But um, Jimmy was life and soul of the party. When he was on a, on a pitch, just give him a ball. Just give him a ball. It was, um, unfortunately, you can only play with one and there was 22 of us. Um, he, he would drop behind the back four on a regular basis and it was something that I tried to iron out of his game, you know. And when they did the celebration, when he scored the equalising goal against Man City, they did the celebration, Jimmy was doing all that. 
I was in the process during the course of the game. What what falls by the wayside because that overtakes it. You know that that's the story. What falls by the wayside is that you know less than a year later we're getting a draw at a club that's spent ten times as much as what we have. Uh, we're getting a point uh, regardless of whether it was a penalty or not. There's manner, and we're getting a point because. I've made a tactical change. Jimmy wanted to go and get the ball off the goalkeeper and off the two centre-halves. And I just said, go and play as a number 10. As soon as I said the words, go and play as a number 10, oh, Jimmy, I'll have some of that. Now, all of a sudden, he's now closer. He's further away from our goal, which was the, the hidden agenda. And he's closer to the number nine. He's closer to the, the higher-end activity. So um, that's what got us the point. Uh, not the fact that Jimmy scored a penalty and he's doing this ridiculous half-time team talk. Um, but if you, uh, if you, you know, again, going back to the analysis of the BBC, you know, what did you think of Jimmy's, what do you think of Jimmy's celebration? I didn't have a clue, Paul. I didn't have a clue he was doing it. I grabbed a hold of Richard Garcia, who was a, a guy that would run through a brick wall for you. And I was saying to Gars, 4-5-1, I was changing the system. Four five one. Make sure Jimmy's in a five, you know, five man midfield. Don't be, you know, four five one. So to get the last seven eight minutes under our belt and and draw the game if possible. Maybe Nick the win if we could do, but the draw that that was a good point. You know that would probably put all the demons about the half time team talk to bed because well, you, you brought it up. You brought it up now. I wasn't going to bring it up, Phil, but you brought up the team talk. <laughs> so obviously on the pitch that was obviously quite well. It, it was. There was quite a lot of lazy journalism about it because you did something that was a bit um, unusual. Yeah, that's fair enough. But a lot of people were saying, oh, he, that was the, the, the celebration that lost the dressing room. And But speak, players have spoken about it after and no one's even mentioned it. Like it wasn't mentioned uh, at the after the game, wasn't mentioned on training on Monday. Obviously, when Jimmy came in and did it a year later, it was a bit more tongue in cheek and a bit of fun. But yeah, one, two questions. One, would you do it again? And two... What was the what, what were you hoping to get out of that? Was there anything in particular you thought, right? I'm not, not this has got to be done here. What was going I've, um, I've, I've said this and I've never mentioned the players' names and I never will do, but there was two players went out the night before. Uh it was a boxing day. That's right. And they went they went out on the Christmas and had their celebrations and did whatever they wanted to do. And they I didn't find that out until the kickoff. The team was already out, prepared. Um, and one of the sports science lads said that they'd smelt alcohol and blah, blah, blah. I made one or two questions. I asked one or two questions. I got the wrong answers. Uh, by that time, the team was out there. And we're 4-0 down at half-time. And I made substitutions at half-time. I brought Craig Fagan on. And Craig got us a goal in the second half. We lost the game 5-1, as you well know. Um, but would I have done it again? Um, I think if you would have said to me, you're going to embarrass the changing room. You're going to embarrass yourself. You're going to hang the club out to dry, but you're going to survive in the in the Premier League. What would you do? I'd do it again. Yeah, absolutely, do it again. And we did survive. We were one to twenty favourites at the start of that season to finish bottom, not to get relegated. To finish bottom, one to twenty favourites. It was an embarrassment to be thrown that figure um, when. All the hard work behind the scenes, all the preparation, all the money spent, all the, you know, all everything that we were, we were, well, we were doing. I had a few people on that to stay up, Phil, that year. Thank you. Consulting, <laughs> actually, Phil, isn't it? 22 one on. That's, 20 that's quite an insult. Like you said, all the, all the hard work you put in, yeah. That's, I had I'd written up on the changing room wall, one to 20 favourites, you know, it was, it was, 
It was. It was, a slant, it was a slant on our character. It was a slant on our, our beliefs. Anyway, uh, we survived that year. And, and obviously the, the next embarrassing moment is me singing on the field of play. Would I have done that again? <laughs> If we'd survived in the Premier League, absolutely. I'm oh, getting... you're joking, Phil. I was going to see if you were going to do that at the end of the show, sing us out, huh? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm end... not surprised you'll see me and Dave sing as much as you want, mate. Honestly, mate. <laughs> the, um, well, we if, you, but... if you work it out, though, if you, somebody says to you, you're going to get um, 70 million for your owners, 70 million for your antics that you're going, you, whatever you're doing, but you're surviving in the Premier, you're giving them another 70 million. What, what boss in the world would, would stop you from doing a half-time team talk? Not one. Get one naked. <laughs> uh, Phil, you see these, uh, like these, these ridiculous odds for you to go down and be bottom. Do you, do you, you happy that them things came out? But surely that must have spurred, give you an extra spur on. Very much so. Um, it get, not that I'm looking for them. Not that I'm looking for them. Because at the end of the day, you know, 104-year history. Yeah. Um, you understand, I, I, I do a bit of bootmaking myself, you know, I, I like my horse racing, I understand numbers, algorithms, you name it, and I, it's very understandable why we work. Are you a Newcastle no. fan, Phil? Is that, who you, is that your is that your thing? I know no, you're so, I'm Sunderland. Sunderland. I'm Sunderland. You're Sunderland, yeah? Aye. Okay. Would I back Newcastle going down? The answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, questions, listener questions. Um, so, Karen Matthews asks, can you tell us um, the worst club that you managed? Oh, dear me. <laughs> oh, shit. It's hard, isn't it? <laughs> it well, the, only, the, only, anyway. the only thing I can say to that is, this is not the club. This was the board at the time. When I got the sack at Derby, it was less than six weeks later than three board members got jail. And they got a year and a half each for fraud, for... The, the, the behaviour of the board members, of the three that got um, got jail, was scandalous. You know, one was a director of football, one was um, um, finance director, um, and I can't remember who the other one was, but there was three of them. So that in itself, if, if the club was being run by them people, that is not synonymous with Derby County. Derby County is a great club, but that's probably the toughest club I've, I've managed because of the state of play of the board at the time. Lovely. Uh, Guy McIntyre asks, why do you dislike Wenger? <laughs> um, I don't. I think he's brilliant. I, uh, I had... Um, this is true. This is a true story. Uh, Colin Todd was manager at Bolton. Uh, we were playing... We weren't playing Arsenal. We were playing Chelsea, I think. No, sorry. We were playing Spurs. And we were staying at Sotwell House in St Albans. And it was at the time when they were building the new training ground and they were using the Watford training ground now. Arsenal were using that one. So they had to get changed. So all of the um, activities, you know, like changing room activities were at Sopwell House. And Arsene Wenger was living there. And it was probably about the first two or three months of his tenure at Arsenal. Now, we replaced Bruce Rioch, which we've talked about, um, who went to Arsenal and did, it didn't work out for him. So me and Colin Todd had breakfast with um, with Arsene Wenger two months into his tenure at Arsenal, and he was talking off the map at what he was going to do, his plans for English football. Um, he was building a village within St Albans, and he was going to put all these foreign players in there, and he was going to have this environment, this this training ground. And he was talking then. That would have been ninety. Who dear me, ninety six, ninety seven. Yeah. 97, and uh, and then the rest is history. It was 
phenomenal what he did. But it, it, we just always sort of went head to head when I was with him, uh, with Sam against him. Then I was at Hull City against him. It was just, he was just this horrible um, Frenchman down the touchline that uh, <laughs> did, didn't like this horrible Geordie. <laughs> so, uh, so hey ho, we didn't get on. Um, one more question, and I'm going to give you a quick fire. So this one's from um, Dave Taylor. What's your relationship now with Sam? Are you still in contact? Are you still quite close, or is anything separated in your friendships? No, we, I turned him down at, um, to go to Sunderland when I was when I was at Southend as manager. He wanted me to come to Sunderland when he when he first went in there as his assistant, and um, I turned it down because I, I firmly believe that I'm, it was a backward step from my career, regardless of, of the size of the club, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I was going from a manager to assistant. I'm going I'm going back the way in my career. Um, that sort of didn't bored well with him but you know bottom line is I don't think he never break a friendship because of what we went through in the Bolton days you know uh, massive respect for each other That's the Phil, Phil did you think I, I when he got the England job assistant manager role there for you <laughs> well that was after the Sunderland job can you believe it so it may, it may <laughs> yeah, have been I a bad move fuck that <laughs> <laughs> So just going to end now, um, Phil, thank you so much. A quick end, just a quick fire round. I'm going to fire some questions at you. Just answer as quick as you can. So uh, are you ready? I am. Okay, so the best player you managed? JJ Kocha. Best manager you had a post-match drink with? Austin Wenger. (laughs) (laughs) Sir Alex Alex Ferguson. Hardest player to manage? Dear me. Uh, I'd probably say Josie Altidore. Meat or fish? Fish. Who wins in a fight? Dean Windass or John Parkin? <laughs> um, I think Parkin would smash him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> best young player you managed? Ooh, that would probably have to be Fraser, Fraser Campbell. Best chairman you worked under? Uh, Paul Duffin. And the biggest dickhead you managed? <laughs> oh, dear me. That would probably be... No hard pass. That would probably be Josie Altidore. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much to Phil. It's been absolutely fantastic. Um, just absolutely phenomenal. Thank you so much, Phil, for giving us your time. Um, and we, I think everyone can agree we all enjoyed that, lads. Yeah, it's been yeah, brilliant. It's been Thanks, Thank you, Phil. Thank you. Cheers, guys. How was that? That was good, wasn't it? Good, wasn't it? Yeah. Good, he, was good. Was, he was good. Yeah, there's good, some good stories in there. So everyone, yeah, was, I really enjoyed that. Was, I've, that was my, my favourite one, I think. Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.